We are here with McCray Sykes, who is a portfolio manager of the Gabelli Equity Trust and for individual separately managed accounts. He joined the firm in 2008 as an analyst focused on financial services. During his tenure at Gamco, Mac has been rated number one in stock picking by the Wall Street Journal for financial services and twice runner-up in the Starmine Analyst Awards in 2014 and 2018. Additionally, he has received several honorable mentions for coverage of brokers and asset managers from Institutional Investor. Mac has an MBA from Columbia and a BA from Hamilton. In 2018, Mac was selected as part of 40 contributing essayists for the Warren Buffett shareholder book, edited by Larry Cunningham. Can you give me some high-level ongoing trends and themes in asset management? I would say at a high level, the industry is in great shape. Product innovation remains strong, public engagement saving rates are high, and among the largest platforms, we continue to see consolidation and the potential for more deals going forward. At the end of August, mutual fund AUM was about 26 trillion, up from 24 trillion at the end of December. ETFs, which are a little faster growing, were at 6.8 trillion and up from 5.5 trillion. Again this year, we're seeing a theme of ETFs taking share from traditional mutual funds. So 500 billion of flows into equities and 200 billion in fixed income products. Since that, the ETF business is concentrated among the major providers, such as BlackRock, Vanguard, State Street, and Vesco. They've been the prime beneficiaries of these trends. Within mutual funds, though, you also have a reallocation to fixed income versus traditional equity funds. Through August, I would note equity mutual fund outflows were $280 billion, while fixed income had inflows of $340 billion. Part of that can be explained from reallocation as the equity market has risen and the strong returns since the pandemic. Secondarily, we see retirees having to take mandatory distributions which then go back into income-oriented strategies. A more significant trend recently as the baby boomers have continued to rise in age. So net-net, I would say that AUM continues to rise, but with interesting dynamics in different vehicles and strategies that are benefiting. So even with higher assets and revenue, the industry is still in the process of consolidation. I would note last year, Morgan Stanley acquired Eaton Vance for $7 billion and created a $1.2 trillion asset management division. Franklin Resources absorbed, like Mason, for $5 billion, gaining scale to $1.5 trillion as well. And in April of this year, Macquarie took over Waddell & Reed from Kansas City, with LPL retaining the Wealth Advisor. On the flip side, we saw Wells Fargo sell their asset management unit to private equity and decoupling it from the bank, and the new leadership there coming from Leg Mason. Now, the existing firms are seeing more push from shareholders to explore potential strategic options. Specifically, Triam Management, led by Nelson Peltz, has taken significant stakes in Invesco and Janice Henderson, which had previously merged. And there has been recent speculation that Invesco could be combined with State Street's group. And then on the smaller side, we're seeing some potential consolidation, and we would highlight some of the publicly traded asset mark managers that could be targets. Those include Manning and Appear, Wisdom Tree, and European asset manager GAM Holdings. The traditional asset allocation mix of 60-40 is changing. Some are suggesting it should move to 50-30-20 or 50% public equities, 30% fixed income, and now 20% private markets. What is driving that change, and what are the implications for investors and industry participants? 
Right, so that's a fascinating question. And there are a couple of things I would unpack there. The most glaring impact is obviously the low rate environment. With the tenure at around 175, it's not just not possible to achieve those savings rates for retirees. And with inflation above 2%, you actually have a loss of pricing power. So the traditional 40% of fixed income is a really model with challenges today. Now on the positive side, there have been a number of developments in private markets that make it a solid option away from fixed income. Traditional private equity returns at major firms have continued to generate solid results. I think that's why you see a lot of demand and growth at those firms specifically. And then there's also the emergence of private credit firms and new strategies that provide higher returns, but in that same asset class, although they are subject to different risk components. And last, I would say entrepreneurial companies are staying private for longer, which we know, which has created more demand for capital in a pre-IPO situation. And over the last decade, assets managed in these private market strategies have doubled to $7 trillion. So a significant opportunity there. And what's happening is that you've, this environment is leading to a whole new creation, an opportunity set for boutique firms. So these are alternative firms that compete with traditional late-stage venture equity and also offer traditional liquid products. This formula of bundled private and public investments has attracted a lot of interest in asset growth and I believe is the most exciting part of the market today. And how is innovation affecting client portfolio management? Again, that's, a, that's another important aspect of the marketplace today. Um, and one theme I'd really like to highlight is kind of this evolution of portfolio management in terms of SMAs. And so years ago, um, you had advisors would recommend a basket of individual securities. And generally, the commissions were much higher then. And so there was a fair amount of friction costs associated with rebalancing and implementing those strategies. And then you had mutual funds, and they provided diversification, professional management, and more access for smaller size accounts. Kind of a technological innovation in that era as well. In 1993, the first ETF was created, which enabled clients to buy in real time and benefit from some unique tax advantages. I would note that today those ETF tax dynamics are up for debate and has been proposed as part of the loophole closures by the Democrats. I would also note the Gabelli organization was the first to convene industry experts to look at those tax dynamics in terms of the competitiveness of mutual funds and ETFs. But getting back to today's innovation, and I believe there are several components now that are driving the industry back to the appeal of the separately managed account. So first, commissionless trading has reduced transaction costs. There's further demand for tax efficiency. Technology has improved and lowered costs of servicing accounts. And then lastly, I would note, and most importantly, there's a growing trend for customization, especially in a world focused on ESG. So the bulk of ETF flows that exist today are into low-cost beta products. But clients can't exclude securities from these vehicles. So essentially, you can't buy the S&P 500 without exposure to, say, something like the oil giant Exxon. And so this importance and understanding around customization is leading firms to embrace these trends. A part of the rationale for Morgan Stanley's acquisition of Eaton Vance was the Parametric platform, which is one of the leaders in SMA delivery. BlackRock bought Aperio for a billion, and that also has a similar capabilities. So I just think this is an important aspect for the market for servicing clients going forward, and also an important innovation and improvement for clients as well in the ESG world. You mentioned commissionless trading. 
but has come with some controversy, including payment for order flow. What are your thoughts on changes there, and should you own any of the firms that make money from payment for order flow? Well, the move to no commission trading was a big shock for the industry. Major firms like Schwab and TD Ameritrade lost significant revenue and almost overnight as the industry participants adjusted commissions. Robinhood championed this move because their model relies on selling customer order flow to market makers. However, in reality, the trading is not really free to the customer. So now the SEC is looking into this and has signaled it will make changes. And since a firm like Robinhood is so dependent on payment for order flow, I think any changes could be material to them. More importantly, I think it's important to focus on a better long-term opportunity with another securities firm. One of my favorite businesses today is global online brokerage firm Interactive Brokers. I've been following the firm for a long time. Approximately 420 million shares, price around 65, market cap at 27 billion. Firm offers trading and custody services for 1.5 million accounts. And it has a unique business mode due to its technology platform and 60% plus margins, which generate significant capital each year. Basically all the attributes of a great business. The firm was founded by Thomas Petterfee, who pioneered electronic trading of options. He owns about 70% of the company and has increased the capital base from essentially zero start of operations to 10 billion today. Significant increase. On the capital allocation, he has retained earnings to support balance sheet growth while building the firm into the lowest cost global execution platform. This company has a wonderful history, but I believe the future looks even brighter. Account growth accelerated during the pandemic, partially due to increased engagement, but more so from globalization of markets and capital formation. And at 1.5 million accounts, this firm has significant room to take share and grow with the market. They continue to add products and geographical reach to this unique business, all the while adding accounts at 20% annualized growth rates. This is not a complicated business to understand, it is an irreplaceable global moat, in my opinion. The firm has a nice history of generating shareholder returns, and I'm very confident they can continue to do so. One other financial conglomerate you follow is Berkshire Hathaway. When you buy, sell, or hold, Warren and Charlie are over 90. What happens when they're not around? Well, Berkshire Hathaway is definitely one of my favorite companies for following, um, and I would buy it at the moment. And I would say despite its $600 billion cap, I still see a lot of opportunity and value in the company. You have a first-class insurance business that will do better with higher interest rates and the current hard market. The rail business is being boosted by the economy, while the energy business will do well in renewables. The stock portfolio contains a large position in Apple, or about 20% of the current market cap. And Apple is outsized today because it has been a four-bagger since they first started investing in it several years ago. And I would just say on management succession, at this point, I don't see a lot of premium in the value of the shares from Warren's influence. Shares traded a 20% discount to my intrinsic value, and I might suggest that if Warren died, the shares would recover just because there might be more certainty in capital allocation. So perhaps more systematic buybacks and maybe a dividend. At this point, the firm has been holding a lot of cash, which may not be embraced in the next generation of managers. Overall though, I don't expect the culture to change much while the firm is well positioned to continue to leverage the American tailwind. And Tommy, I would note we have some great content on our website about our annual meetings at Berkshire that are worth reading if you're an enthusiast. All right, thanks for coming on today and I hope we can have you on again soon. Great, thanks Tommy. Following today's discussion, I must read the following disclosures. 
Equity investments are affected by market conditions. The intrinsic value of the stocks in which our portfolios invest may never be recognized by the broader market. The opinions expressed are current as of October 1, 2021, but are subject to change. The information provided in this podcast does not provide information reasonably sufficient upon which to base an investment decision and should not be considered a recommendation to purchase or sell any particular security. Portfolio holdings are subject to change. The performance of any single portfolio holding is no indication of the performance of other portfolio holdings of any strategy or fund. Comments made on any individual company or stock is not an indication that it is currently held in a portfolio, nor is it an indication that it will ever be held in a portfolio. Several companies were mentioned in this episode. We own less than 1% of the following. Apple, ticker AAPL, Interactive Brokers, ticker IBKR, Berkshire Hathaway, ticker BRK.A and BRK.B, Wisdom Tree Financial, ticker WETF, Robinhood, ticker HOOD, TD Ameritrade, ticker AMTD, Schwab, ticker SCHW, Exxon Mobil, ticker XOM, Janus Henderson, ticker JHG, BlackRock, ticker BLK, State Street, ticker STT, Invesco, ticker IVZ, Morgan Stanley, ticker MS, Franklin Templeton, ticker BEN, Macquarie, ticker MQBKY, LPL Financial, ticker LPLA, Wells Fargo, ticker WFC. We also own 1.07% of Manning and Napier, ticker MN, and 3.2% of GAM Holdings, ticker GMHLF. We do not hold Waddle and Reed, ticker WDR.